I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome on today's show We have David Gluckman He is a brand identifier And he has done some amazing brands In the liquor business He's from South Africa And he has written a book called That Shit Will Never Sell Hello and welcome to the show David How are you today? Very good, thank you very much Nice to meet you Likewise so you're born in 1938 in South Africa. What was life growing up in South Africa? It was interesting. Well, the first part of my life was um, during the war. But I wasn't particularly aware of the fact that people were, were fighting. Although my uncle all fought in a place that we called up north, which was Egypt and Libya. They joined the British Army at places like Alamein and Tobruk. So I was aware of it. I think the most striking memory of the war was when it finished. I was then seven years old. And what my mother did was she went out and baked a loaf of white bread. I, I never could quite figure out why this was, but apparently there was some embargo on the baking of white bread uh, during the war years. And that's what my mother did. And I thought, how delicious it was. And growing up, did you have a good family background that kind of helped you? progress in who you are and what you are? I've had a stable family background. I had a, a, a younger brother, six years younger, who was born just after the war. I was born in a place called Port Elizabeth, which is by the coast. But in about 1944, we moved to Johannesburg. and We moved into a, a flat in a high-rise um, part of the city, which was great fun growing up. Growing up, what was your education background? I went to um, ordinary state schools, um, two of them. I think the quality of the education was pretty poor. But I suppose given the fact that I was living in a country which was segregated by law, um, because I was white, I was accepted at university, which I think was unfair. I mean, I think living in apartheid South Africa was not the most desirable experience of my life. I, I couldn't come to terms with the fact that black people and Indian people were treated as separate and inferior. I think I was very liberally inclined. And this was, became the case at university, where in my three years at university, blacks, Indians, whites, coloreds, all mixed, were all equal. We sat in the same canteens, we ate together, we drank together. But once we left the university environment, everybody had to live in different places. You couldn't go into the same restaurants or bars outside campus. That must have been hard to be a white guy being segregated, not segregated, but have that higher power. It must have felt odd for you 
you can go here, they can, can't go there, you know? It was utterly unacceptable. And I think when you got to university and you realized that the people of different races were just the same as you, some were cleverer, some not so. It was ludicrous. We couldn't play in the same sports teams. We couldn't go off campus. I remember once flying back to South Africa after I'd been away for many years and meeting a university friend of mine at the airport. I said, come and have a beer. And he said, I can't. I'm not allowed to go into the white bar. And I mean, it's all changed now, fortunately. But um, in my youth, it wasn't like that at all. You went to university, what did you go study? I asked somebody once, I described my university course and I said, um, what do you think my university course set me up for? And they thought for a minute and they said, pop quizzes. Because I, I did a very mixed degree. I spent I did three years of English and three years of psychology concurrently. I then did constitutional law, Latin, uh, because in South Africa, they have Roman Dutch law, or they had Roman Dutch law, and it required a knowledge of Latin to qualify as a lawyer. I did history of art and history of music and philosophy. So I came out of university knowing a little about quite a few things, but with no real equipment for a future career. That's a lot of learning. Did you get to complete all those, or did you kind of stop and start? Or uh, I completed everything, every paper but one. I went into a paper in my English course on Anglo-Saxon and I thought I might be able to push my way through Anglo-Saxon, but I, I was unable to do that. Uh, the questions are impossible, so I failed that and as a result, I did not get a degree. But by then, I think I decided that I wanted to go out into the wide world and work and that getting a degree wouldn't have made any real difference to my future, so I never bothered to finish it. I'm quite bad in the way. Why? Well, uh, my parents only wanted me to study law, but I was totally uninterested in studying law, the idea of studying law. My grandfather had been a judge and was quite an eminent legal scholar, and I didn't think that I had the same equipment that he had uh, to do law, so I decided against it. But my father was an avid reader. He read six or seven books a week, every week, rain or shine. And one of the books that came into the house was um, a book by a man called Martin Mayer called Madison Avenue, USA. Madison Avenue, USA was about the advertising business in the US in the 1950s. And I read it and I thought, hey, this looks pretty interesting. I decided that I was going to have a look at advertising as a career because I thought it would give an opening for my what I thought might be creative abilities. So I knocked on a few doors and landed at a, an advertising agency in Johannesburg. To my delight and surprise, was given a job. And I think I was the first, in quotes, graduate trainee that the agency had ever had. So they treated me with some interest and, and respect. But what they decided to do was something that took 10 years out of my life. This was 1959 in Johannesburg. It was a big ad agency. They decided that I was going to become what's known as an account executive, which in advertising terms is known as a suit. In other words, I was the guy that um, was the interface between the creative department in the agency and the clients. I spent 10 years doing this job and I, I actually wasn't cut out for it. I wasn't interested in it. I wasn't fulfilling any creative function at all. But I did it in Johannesburg for a couple of years. And then I decided that the time had come to leave the country and go on an overseas adventure. So I um, bought a ticket on an ocean liner called Cape Town Castle, which traveled from Cape Town to Southampton. And I arrived in London in the freezing cold of 1961, late November, looking for a job. It was a bad time to get a job in advertising at that time because during November and December, all the ad people were having a jolly uh, the parties and lunches and everything else, so there's no time to get a job. But I did, I think I had five pounds left and landed a job in an agency called Benson and Bowles. But first of February, 1962 as an account executive because that's what I had been doing and that's what I had a, some credibility 
and, um, and that's where, where I um, where I stayed for a while. And in that transition from ads to the London, you must have felt nervous the fact that you're going to go travel to London and you don't know where you're going to go, but yet you landed in this this job where you eventually got to take on some amazing companies. It must have been cool. Well, it was it, it was interesting in some ways because. Uh, First of all, the agency was full of guys from Oxford and Cambridge. Initially, they could be quite intimidating because we looked at Oxford and Cambridge from afar in South Africa and treated with a tremendous amount of uh, respect. But I realised that there were just as many idiots from Oxford and Cambridge as there were from any other university. So, but I, but I worked in this agency called Benton and Bowles, and I worked initially on Procter and Gamble business which was quite tough. It was very rigid. Uh, everything you did was through a system. But it taught me a huge amount. I think it taught me that it, it took some of the romance out of advertising. If it wasn't a romantic business, it was actually advertising was about selling soap, selling gin, selling washing powder. I think that uh, that planted the seed in my head, which never went away. And I've never had any kind of overly glamorous vision of what I do. I mean, I see what I do is um, creating things to sell for commercial purposes. I had a big change in my career. I was put onto an account which I think meant rather more than simply selling soap. It was I was engaged in a national cause, and that national cause happened to be Irish. A gentleman of 28 years old and of amazing charisma called AJF O'Reilly, who was the general manager of the Irish Dairy Board at the age of 28. And Tony O'Reilly was a very famous Irish rugby player, played for the British Lions. I think he scored 18 tries on the tour of New Zealand, which is almost unheard of. I had seen him play in South Africa in 1955. And here he was at 28, managing the Irish Dairy Board in Dublin, which is the most fantastic. And he was an amazing guy to work for. He was very empowering. He was very stimulating. And I think up until then, working with O'Reilly and the Irish was the high point of my advertising life. And what we, we had a, a national cause to follow. At the time that O'Reilly was appointed in 1962, Irish butter was a commodity. It had no identity. It was used as a butter for blending. So if they produced Tesco's own label butter, Irish butter might be part of it. Now with no identity, it had no price. It couldn't command a premium price, uh, which fitted the quality of the product. So O'Reilly was given the job of transferring Irish butter from being a commodity, an anonymous commodity, to being a brand. And the agency, and I was a minor functionary in this team, I wasn't the prime mover. The agency produced the Kerrygold brand and the initial advertising for Kerrygold. They produced the packaging and it was a huge and dramatic success, which sort of set O'Reilly off on a very ambitious program. The rest was history. I think Terry Gold was regarded as one of the great advertising and marketing successes of the 1960s. Wow, and how did you feel taking on something that was not was knowable in the country, but then bring it to a, a level with the advertising and selling and then seeing the success of it must have been fantastic. It was, it, it, because you were doing something that, that, that meant a bit more than, you know, selling a bit more soap for Procter & Gamble, which was acceptable enough in its, in its own sense. But I mean, I remember when I left to join another agency, O'Reilly gave me the farewell speech and said, you've done a grand job for Ireland. And I thought, I felt really good about that because I wasn't simply serving a commercial cause, but serving a, a, a national cause. And that was um, quite exciting. When I was working on an existing product like Kame Soap, yes. this product was around. When I worked on Cherry Gold, it started off, it didn't exist. And then six months later, we saw packs of butter on the shelves in supermarkets. So from something that was imaginary, it became something that was real. And that was my first experience, I suppose, of developing a brand. Although, as I said, 
I, I didn't create Kerry Gold. I did make one contribution. Though. I did take some of my Procter & Gamble experience and apply it to Kerry Gold. I remember calling up a creamery somewhere in Ireland and saying, how much cream goes into Kerrygold butter? And the guy I spoke to said, there's a pint of cream in every packet. We used that as an advertising strap line for the brand for a couple of years. And I, I was quite chuffed with that because it was my first opportunity to really make some creative contribution to it. So that, uh, that was Kerrygold. I left and joined another agency Shortly after that, I think in a, I, by that time I had a family. So in pursuit of more money, um, I joined another agency and worked on some pretty boring accounts. Uh, one was wool sausages and the other was Gibbs toothpaste. And then at the age of 30, I said, this is, I'm not going anywhere with this job. I hate it, I don't like it. I don't have any ambition to be CEO. I want to do some work with my hands. I want to be creative. I couldn't get a job as a copywriter because I had no track record. And by then I was 30 years old. So I went to my boss and said, look, why don't we set up a department that offers to help companies develop new products? He said, what experience do you have of that? I said, absolutely nothing, apart from a memory of how Kerrygold progressed. So we set up a department to help companies develop new products. And quite early on in the piece, I met a guy who worked in a drinks company called IDV. IDV was an international, it was called International Distillers and Vintners. It owned a company in Ireland called Gilby's of Ireland. And things were, it was great because here was a client with a ready-made desire to develop brands internationally and I remember we developed a rum from Mauritius, a white rum from Mauritius called Green Island. We developed two drinks from Kenya, one was called Kenya Cane, which is a white spirit, a bit like rum, and the other was a coffee liqueur called Kenya Gold. And we progressed along quite nicely without really setting the world on fire. I mean, those brands, I think some of them still exist, but they've never ventured beyond their national boundaries. Anyway, in 1973, my partner, we were only two people in, the, in our department. We decided we would go it alone. So on the 1st of April, 1973, we set up office in Soho in London with one client, which was the IDB. A lot of hope and everything else. And then a brief came into the office about that week which is kind of weird because it was what we call a Wexford whisper, which is a version of Chinese whisper, where one person said to another person who said to another person who said to me, we want to develop an Irish brand for export. And that was the brief. Nowadays, a brief consists of vast piles of paper with loads of information. But in this case, it was simply, we want to develop an Irish brand for export. And that was it. So they didn't say, well, you can use this or you can use that or we want it to be this or we want it to be that. It was a completely open brief and it was quite daunting uh, in that context. And I remember on a Monday morning, we'd only been working in business for about a week. My partner always came in about an hour and a half after I did. And I said to him, what are we going to do about this bloody Irish brief? And then the brief had come from the, the Irish Minister of Economic Affairs. And what he had said to all major companies in Ireland was, if you can develop a brand that can, we can export, we'll give you a 10-year tax holiday. But when you think about it, it's quite an amazing incentive. You will not pay tax on that brand for 10 years. I said to my, I was rather irate because I'd been in since eight and he got in about 20 to 10. And I said, what are we going to do about this bloody Irish brief? I think my language might have been more colorful than that. And he looked at me and said, well, I don't know. And I said, do you think there's anything in my experience of Kerrygold that we could bring to bear uh, on this particular brief? And he said, in a very half-hearted way, well, what happens if you mix cream and Irish whiskey? He was a conceptualizer and I was the action man. So I said, well, there's only our way to find out. We went downstairs to the supermarket, quite near us, called International Stores, at the bottom of Berwick Market in Soho. 
And we bought, I think, a quarter bottle of Jameson's and a tub of cream. And we took it enthusiastically back to the office and mixed it in fairly haphazard proportions and tasted it. And the, the end result was absolutely disgusting. I was desperately disappointed that this was in my mind's eye. It might produce something attractive. So I said, well, we, we, we can't be defeated by this. Let's go back to the supermarket and look around and see what else we can find. And after about 10 minutes looking around, we happened upon a tin of Cadbury's drinking chocolate. So I said, that's it. That's going to make a difference. So we took it back up to the office, added some sugar, added some drinking chocolate, mixed and mixed, played around for 10 minutes and arrived at something which we thought tasted really good. And I said to Hugh, my partner, I'm going to go and phone up our client at IDV, which is at the head office, and show this to him. And I remember he said, well, no, let's, let's not be quite so hasty. I said, no, no, we're going to do it now. Jumped into a cab, went across to York Gate, met this man called Tom Jago, who was our client. Uh, he tasted the product and he said, that's great. Let's do it. And I mean, I, I think there are lots of kind of heroic moments in the development of, of an idea. And this was the first heroic I mean, We'd made the mad step of producing something unlike anything that had ever been made before. But he took the real heroic step of saying yes. I mean, his job was on the line. My job wasn't on the line. He said, yes, let's do it. And um, that was the beginning of the Bailey's adventure. And it was quite extraordinary. I mean, 45 minutes in a supermarket with a bit of casual cookery, because neither my partner nor I had any conception of what putting together products was all about. We didn't even know whether it was possible to make it, which I think was a benefit because sometimes ignorance, uh, if you don't know what you can't do, you can do anything. And that was the end of the first stage. Wow, and the next stage was developing the products to pitch or what was... And bear in mind, I had never met anyone in Ireland. You know, the end, I'd never met the end user. So the next thing we did was we took this bottle of stuff up to the R&D department, which was in a place called Harlow, which is outside of London. And we said to the technical people, can you make this? And they said, we don't know. We've never tried. We've never tried anything like that. We don't know whether we could produce alcohol and cream to stay together in stable form over a long period, but we can try. And Tom, the client, said, well, that's the task. That's the task that you have. So we left it with them. And then I remember talking to the guy uh, who optimized the technology. I said, what did you really think of the product that we showed you that day? He said, I thought it was utterly disgusting. But he said, I knew what you wanted to do. And that was the main thing. So the next thing he said was, now we're going to have to produce a brand. And the first thing you need in producing a brand is a brand name. Now, one of the things that O'Reilly told me back in the day, he said, if you produce an Irish brand using an Irish family name, don't pick one like mine or like yours. He said, names like O'Reilly or O'Dowd sound whimsical, was his words. So he was an Irishman saying that at his own expense. So, so he said, you have to look for names which are Irish, but not too Irish. And um, we were moving office from Dean Street in Soho to Greek Street. And our office was above a restaurant, a bistro. It was called Bailey's Bistro. It was of that fixed definition. It wasn't an Irish restaurant. It was just a general bistro. But when I saw the sign outside the, uh, on the window of the restaurant, I said, hey, that's a great name for this drink that we're doing. We're going to call it Bailey's. So I called up my client because everything you do is determined by what other people think. You know, if you've got a client, he has to like the name. So I called him up and said, hey, I've got this new name, this name is Bailey's. And I explained O'Reilly's thesis about typically Irish names, uh, which he accepted. And he, he said, yeah, I, I like the sound of that, which is kind of interesting because nowadays people spend thousands of pounds doing research into the acceptability of brand names. Um, we arrived at that like a hole-in-one. It was a um, first strike success. It was amazing. But you can't design a label until you have a name. So we called it Bailey's Irish Chocolate Cream Liqueur. We then had to find a designer to produce the, um, the label. And our secretary, uh, she said, look, my husband's a designer and he's looking for work, why don't you try him out? So 
I thought, well, why not? Let's let's give it a go. So I, I literally called him up on the telephone and said, look, and gave him a brief. I said, we want to get across this whole kind of Kerrygold atmosphere of Ireland of green fields and lush pastures and contented cows. But please, please remember that it's a butter is different from a drink. Drinks are premium. Drinks cost money. So therefore, put some premium signals in. And Bob, his name was Bob Wagner. And about a week later, our secretary appeared in the office with a selection of about half a dozen designs, and we looked at them all and saw one that we particularly liked, and we said that's going to be it. So this is now July 1973. The hardest part of the whole job was optimizing the product because you couldn't go along to Ireland and make a recommendation of the product that you didn't know could work. So it took them about six months to optimize the product, uh, which they did. I said to Tom, my client, this is a very strange idea to people. Why don't we try and make it real? So what we did is we went to a printer and printed up um, a dozen labels, which were beautifully presented and embossed, and they looked like the real thing, and we stuck them onto bottles, and we filled the bottles with product. And we did two things. One, we stuck a couple of bottles into a pub in London. It was called the Allsop Arms in Gloucester Place. And we did a couple of focus groups with consumers to see what they thought. The consumer response was really interesting. I remember one man in one of the focus groups held up a glass of Baileys to all and sundry and said, this is a girl's drink. I wouldn't be seen dead drinking this. I drink pints and I drink shorts, but I wouldn't drink this. But what was interesting was at the end of the focus group, we noticed that all the glasses had been drained. They clearly liked the product. And then we did one focus group with women who said that it reminded them of something called kaolin and morphine, which is a 1960s diarrhea remedy. So the, the research findings were less than enthusiastic. We put a couple of bottles into a pub, uh, this pub I mentioned, the Also Barnes. I used to call in every couple of days to see whether people had bought it and what they'd said about it. And every time I went in, the guy just went on working in the pub and saying, no, nobody's seen it, nobody's interested. And then the day before we went to Ireland, I went in again and one of the bottles was gone. And I said, gosh, what happened? He said, two policemen came in last night and drank the whole bottle between them. They, they, they thought the product was amazing. So we thought, that's it. We've got hard data now uh, in support. Let's go to Dublin. And we went to Dublin and presented the idea to a gentleman called David Dan, who was the managing director of Gilby's of Ireland. And I think we used my experience on Kerry Gold as part of the introduction, because I'd never met him. I had no credibility. I hadn't developed any brands. And we also, we, we, we went, I think, in hindsight, it was a pretty crazy thing to do. We went over to Ireland with no plan B. In other words, if he didn't like the idea that we presented to him, we would have to go back to London and, and start the whole process again. But fortunately for us, he absolutely loved it. Uh, and David Dan, this is the, the second, to me, great heroic act. I mean, he was the man who was going to have to make the stuff. He was the man who was going to have to use up air miles and shoe leather, going around the world, selling it to people. Uh, it was going to become his, you know, great odyssey for the next few years. And he bought the idea, and that was, that was crucial. And those are the people, I mean, the people like that, you do meet heroic people in, in business. O'Reilly was someone like that. David Dan certainly was. I think he gave his life to the brand. I mean, he died prematurely. He totally dedicated himself to making Bailey's work. There was a nice story, though, and a side story. This was October 1973, and we decided that we would launch the brand in October 1974. It does take a year to do these things. You have to build a plant uh, in Ireland to process the product. And you'd have to go through all kinds of legal requirements, registering the brand name in different countries and everything. And so it, it, it was going to take a year to do this. If Bailey's was to be successful, it would be a double whammy for Ireland because it would not only um, bring valuable export money into the country, 
It will also dispose of liquid milk in cream form, which is a, a very profitable way of selling milk for the farmers. And the other thing, which is serendipitous, was that the holding company for all this was called Grand Metropolitan Hotel, and they owned express dairies in Ireland. So, you know, that was a perfect example of what they call vertical integration, where everything comes from the same company, and you don't have to buy anything they bought outside were bottles and labels. So that was it. The other story was that I picked up the research report Remember I told you we did a couple of uh, focus groups. I picked up the report on the way to the airport to present. And it was less than enthusiastic. So I said to Tom, why don't we just keep this? Will I need to press them or put them off? Let's, um, let's go with what we believe. And so I presented the research to them at the 10th anniversary party, by which year Bailey's had sold 48 million bottles and was you know, just coming to the end of its tax holiday. So that's the Bailey story, of which I'm inordinately proud. 1974, Bailey's is released and it's grabbing this momentum. But there's this, this 10-year gap of Bailey's and the next liqueur brand that you made. What happened in that period of 10 years? No, I developed loads of things in the 10 years. Well, Bailey's wasn't the only one. I developed a wine brand called Pierre Dor, which you are undoubtedly too young to remember, which was uh, became the biggest selling French wine brand in the UK through the 70s. It was extraordinarily successful. I developed other products for Bailey's beginning of the 80s, developed Sheridan's. Are you familiar with Sheridan? Yes, I am. And that again was a very exciting development because the idea took about 30 seconds. Uh, the, the, the cell took about three minutes and the decision took about a minute. So in the space of about four and a half minutes, I went from an idea to a brand, which actually happened. And again, the heroism was on the part of the guy who bought the idea. Not so much on me. This was 84. By this time, Bailey's had become a kind of Irish marketing academy. And people came to Bailey's from all different parts of business because it was a successful company, because it was innovative, it was going places. And um, are you familiar with Bewley's yes, in Dublin? Sir. Yes, I am. Well, Bewley's launched a coffee cream liqueur, and Bailey's were incensed by this, they said. How dare they try and impinge on our territory. So I was summoned over to Dublin at very short notice, just before Christmas in 1984, I think, to collect a brief to develop a coffee cream liqueur. And I remember stopping off at the bar in the airport to get a box of matches, and they were pulling a pint of Guinness, and I was looking at this and marvelling at the, the beauty of it, you know, how it started off like a giant Bailey's, and then the components separated out to produce this beautifully appetizing black and white thing. So because it was close to Christmas, we had the meeting in the hotel next to the airport. And I got in about 10.15 or something, and, and I could see all the briefing material was, was sitting waiting for me. There were whiteboards, there were boxes of data, coffee liqueur consumption around the world. And um, so I set up, I said to the people there, four or five people from Bailey's, I said, would you mind very much if I ordered a pint of Guinness? And they said, hang on a minute, this, we, we're not the old-fashioned booze business anymore. We don't drink at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's totally unacceptable. And I said, oh, please. I said, I had a heavy night last night. And I just need a pint of Guinness. And eventually they agreed to accept that and they called down to room service and ordered a pint of Guinness. And I turned to them in the meeting and said, how would you like a coffee cream liqueur holding up the pint of Guinness where you would drink the coffee pointing to the black stuff through the cream pointing to the white stuff? And they said, that's interesting. How could you do that? I remembered when I was probably 11 years old, my father having been given a present at home of two liqueurs in bottles joined together. There were two bottles joined together with two apertures. One aperture had yellow liqueur and the other aperture had green liqueur. So I was making this up as I went along. I said, I imagine two bottles. One has is a big bottle with black stuff in it and, uh, and has a wide aperture for pouring. And the other bottle is smaller and has white stuff in it. And that has a small aperture so that when you pour the liquid, the black 
goes down to the bottom and the white stays on top. Now, I had no idea whether this would work or not, but I was making it up as I went along. And they were absolutely intrigued by this. And um, much to my absolute delight, they bought the idea there and then. I mean, they said at 10.15 or 10.30, they said, that's great, why don't we go to lunch? We'll buy you lunch. And um, again, another act of real heroism by somebody who could take on an idea like that. Now, this guy has become quite famous in his own right in Ireland. He's called P.J. Rigney, Pat Rigney. And he is the owner and founder of a brand called Gunpowder Gin. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. It's called um, Rochambeau Gunpowder Gin, which has taken Ireland by storm, has become a significant international gin brand. And he's become a great entrepreneur in the whole field of drink and has been. He was part founder of a brand called um, Brew Vodka, which you may have heard of. Oh, yeah which was quite famous. And mm. just identifying people like that who were very good at buying ideas. I think in the whole process of having spent 50 years in the ideas business, I've come to realize that the real heroes are the people who um, buy the ideas. I mean, that, 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 that's the great act because you're in a company, your reputation, your job is on the line. If you buy an idea, just based on a hunch because somebody suggested it to you. It's a very courageous thing to do. And PJ Rigney was um, one of those people. Anyway, that was that. There's one thing that kind of caught me there for a second is that you t- you're taking ideas where you're mixing a coffee and cream to make a liqueur and different ideas. Yeah. But you must have courage and, and guts to create an idea and then form the idea and then pitch it to an individual here as well as created. Is there a process or something that you kind of go about to funnel those ideas into something that can finally become a product later? The passage of ideas from one person to another, they're about relationships. I think if you both understand, if you both equally understand what the problem is, then when a solution emerges, you should both be able to see it. I've sold lots of ideas off the back of of a cigarette packet, you know, in two lines, because the person I'm selling the idea to, A, trusts me, and B, has the same understanding of what we're trying to do as I do. And so it's two minds with a single thought. In most times, the passage of ideas, it's very much an arm's length and sometimes adversarial relationship. You know, a company says, challenges you to come up with a good idea and it's it's tough to do it under those circumstances but if you work with people you know who rate you and rate your ability to produce ideas it's a lot easier a hell of a lot easier so you kind of bounce from brand to brand to brand but like is there another particular brand or story that kind of sits in your mind that, that you say, wow, I came up with that or whatever, you know? There are loads. I mean, I, I loved every brand I ever developed, I think. And I think even now, when ideas have disappeared or died or whatever, I still believe that there are good ideas. Well, there's some interesting ideas which weren't quite so successful, but um, I still think were good ideas. I'll take you on to 1990. And the company by then had bought the U.S. company that owned Smirnoff Vodka. Now, Smirnoff in the U.S. was suffering as a brand because it was, uh, they kept cutting the price and it was a cheap supermarket vodka. It's never had that reputation in Ireland or in England, but in America, uh, they became slaves to selling volume. That that was their whole aim in life. And to that end, they cut the price in order to persuade more people to buy it. But then the market began to change and two brands entered the US market and moved the goalposts. They were premium brands. And the first one was Stolichnaya, which came from Russia. So therefore it had all that Russian authenticity about it. And the second one was Absolute from Sweden. And suddenly these were classy, new, premium vodkas, higher in price than Smirnoff. And they were taking huge chunks out of the vodka market in the US. And Smirnoff's management had moved from America, where it started, to London, where the head office was. I was called in and given a brief to produce a premium Smirnoff to compete with Absolute and Solid Naya. And I, I, I always likened this to Kentucky Fried Chicken trying to get a Michelin star. 
by producing a super KFC, which we could be applauded by the restaurant critics. It was a barely credible objective. How the hell do you make something that's a cheap supermarket brand into a premium brand to compete for the best? It was difficult, but I concluded that the only way that Smirnoff could compete with Absolute and Stolly was to come up with a product that people regarded as superior. It's the only way that you couldn't compete with them in image terms. You couldn't produce a sexy Smirnoff bottle that was going to compete with um, Absolute. It's a gorgeous looking bottle. It had to be a product point of difference. I said, how the hell are we going to do this? I mean, how, you know, vodka by law has to be odorless, tasteless and colourless. How can you take something with those constraints and turn them into something different, better? And then I found the answer in a very unlikely place. On old Smirnoff bottles, there was a date embossed on the shoulder of the bottle, which was 1818-1818. And I looked at that date and I went back into my memory bank and remembered that the the still that is used for making vodka was created, it's called Continuous Still, and it was developed by an Irishman called Aeneas Coffee, the coffee still, and he developed it in 1830. So consequently, if Smirnoff really did begin in 1818, it could not have been made in a Continuous Still. It had to have been made in a pot still, which is the kind that they use for whiskey and cognac. And I got very excited by this. I said, hey, we'll produce the world's first pot still vodka. But when you think about it, if I said to you, I want you to taste this vodka, it's made in a pot still, you would be perfectly entitled to look at me and say, so what? Could I tell the difference? And you'd be right in saying that. So pot still vodka is a process. It's a bit like saying, this thing has been distilled 27 times. You know, again, you're going to say, so what's in it for me? So I had to find a benefit based on pot still vodka. I found it in a word that had never hitherto been used in vodka, because the word smooth. The whole vocabulary of vodka at the time was about being sharp, being strong, being pure, being clean. But the word pure, uh, the word smooth, did not exist in the vodka category. So I went to New York with a technical expert and we interviewed consumers. And this guy sat behind a one-way mirror and observed these groups. And we did lots of blind tastings uh, of um, vodkas. And I said to him, look, by the end of this, we're going to be here for a week. At the end of the week, I want nine people out of ten tasting these things blind without any knowledge of what they were to say they prefer our product to Absolute. And when I ask them why, I want them to say because it's smoother. And he achieved it. We actually produced a product which uh, fitted in with the, in, into the vodka regulations, but it was smoother. And I said to people, but it's Smirnoff. Surely you're not going to buy a Smirnoff vodka instead of Absolute. And I said, no, we would, because it's, it tastes smoother. And so we developed Smirnoff Black Label, which um, was clearly the, the smoothest vodka money could buy. But it didn't succeed for a variety of reasons. I think on the advertising side, the creative people didn't really think that smoothness was a particular benefit. I think they were wrong. But at the other side, on the other side of the coin, I think, have you ever heard of the term NIH? Yes. NIH was a key factor. The Americans, who were the key market for this, extremely pissed off that they'd taken away the management of their beloved Smirnoff from America and put it in London. And however good an idea we came up with, the chances of it being supported were pretty negligible. So Smirnoff like, I think it's still around, but it never took the world apart. However, what just happened recently is up until about six months ago, Smirnoff was the biggest selling spirit brand in the US market. It was huge, but it's recently been overtaken by a brand called Tito's, which is a domestic vodka in America. And it has the line, so smooth it could be drunk straight. And so our smoothness territory has been taken up by someone else and used to very good effect. So I'll drink Cheetos. <laughs>
So, continue on the the trend of 1990s to to now. Kind of, did you still develop more brands, or where did you go after that? Well, we developed loads of brands. Um, we worked a lot internationally. So, the company set up a satellite company in India, and um, we developed a range of whiskey brands in India under the Gilby's name because they wanted an internationally known brand name. And we produced a whiskey called Gilby's Green Label, which became a major seller in the Indian market. Uh, I developed a single malt whiskey called the Singleton, which is now the fifth biggest selling single malt in the world, I think. Uh, did a, another vodka, the world's first vodka made from grapes, not grain, which is called Syrah. Uh, produced a premium gin. The company had to relinquish ownership of Bombay Sapphire because uh, through a merger, they ended up owning too many gins. So they got rid of Bombay Sapphire. And we produced Tanqueray 10, which is the world's first gin made from fresh botanicals, fresh fruit and fresh botanicals. I even, when Diageo and I parted company in um, 2005, got together with two partners to produce what I think is the world's best cream liqueur by a country mile. It's Irish. Um, it's called Cool Swan. Have you ever heard of it? No, I have not. Okay, well, ask around, and um, it certainly is available in Duty Free. Uh, it's also available in, in Dublin. Taste Cool Swan. Put it alongside a bottle of Bailey's and taste the two and uh, see what you think. Cool, cool Swan is still out there making its way, I think, hoping that some big company will eventually buy it so I can get my money back. But whereas... A hundred brands have all copied Bailey's. Same packaging, same product, you know, similar product. Cool Swan is very different. Bailey's is in a short, fat, brown bottle. Cool Swan's in a tall, slim, white bottle. The liquid is white. It contains Belgian chocolate and single malt Irish whiskey. And it is absolutely delicious. So I've, I've, I've ventured into the market on my own account on a couple of occasions. You mentioned about having a plan B. When did you discover that you needed to have a plan B and all you've done? One of the things that Bailey's taught me, well, Bailey's taught me a huge number of things. One was that to be true to what you believe in, you should always try to produce a single idea. It's actually very easy, if you've been doing what I do for as long as I have, to come up with six answers to a brief. It's not the way to operate. I have always operated without plan B. There's been no cover for me. I've gone to a company and said, this is the best idea I can think of at this stage in the procedure. And most times they bought it, they bought the idea. So no plan B is, um, I think the, the lessons from Bailey's were these. One, listen to consumers from time to time, but don't, just, I mean, I believe in what I think Steve Jobs said. Don't ask consumers what they want. Tell them what they will want. Uh, that's the essence of the, the, the business of ideas. Take people to new places. Because people like what they know. They don't really know what they like, and that's quite important. The other thing with Bailey's was that we brought a product to life. It looked real. We presented something. Instead of presenting some hypothetical concept, we presented a real entity which they could look at to touch and and I always try to do that. The next thing was, uh, this is very controversial, but I'll still stick with it. Somebody once said to me, how come you've got so many brands out onto the market uh, during your career? And I said, because we never dealt with marketing people. Marketing people invariably want proof. And the only way you can find proof is you have, if you have six ideas or three ideas or more than one idea, and then you go out and ask people which one they prefer. With Bailey's, the line of progression was to top people in the business. Top people aren't interested in what journey you went on to create an idea. They look at the idea and say yes or no. And they listen to your argument and say yes or no, and that's how it works. Marketing people need reassurance, they need proof. And that's burdensome, I think, in the progression of an idea. Do you feel that some of your stuff has been kind of on a win or a gush or kind of just go with this? No, I, I, I don't like the, the word gut feel because I think that's some kind of instinct which is haphazard. I mean, I think that 
you listen to a brief and you come up with what you think is an answer. When I did um, Grape Vodka, for example, I went to the company and said, look, Grape Goose is out there, it's a premium vodka. Now, in order to accelerate your progression towards competing with it, you have to offer people something different. And the idea of vodka made from grapes, not grape, is very appealing to people, in my view. And, uh, you know, people bought the, uh, bought the idea. And in the same way with the malt whiskey, what I said, and it was a very simple piece of inverted logic. At the time, malt whiskey accounted for 3% of all whiskey. And I said, look, there's no point in developing a malt whiskey to compete in amongst that 3% pool. Let's produce a malt whiskey for everybody. So therefore, a malt whiskey that's designed to take business from blended whiskey. It's a kind of bridge brand. If you know the business and you accept that argument, the rest of it's fairly easy. In my case, I mean, I think I was, I'm really lucky. I had loads of practice. And Gary Player once said, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. And I think it's a very good quote. It's in my book. So tell us about how the idea and concept came about writing That Shit Will Never Sell. Well, first thing is to tell you where the name came from. I went to uh, loads of publishers and went down on bended knees, begging them to take on the book. And the story, which I thought was an interesting story and therefore worth telling, and nobody would play. So I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my own. I'm going to publish it myself because I want to tell the story. And the first thing I thought, well, if you publish it yourself, you need to have as much standout as you could possibly get. So. I thought of this quote in 1975 at the beginning of the CEO of IDV took a couple of bottles of Bailey's to New York to their chief importer of booze in the US market. And he put the bottle of Bailey's down in front of him, poured a glass and handed it to him. And he picked up the glass, sipped at it and looked at him, looked at him square in the eyes and said, that shit will never sell. And I thought, what a great title for a book. But you, you may not have come across the book physically, but it's quite interesting. Because I found a designer online. I remember calling him up and saying, um, I'd like to talk to you about designing the cover for my book. And he said, I said, how big is your company? And he said, you're speaking to it. So I thought, that's perfect. I don't want some big corporation doing my design. I want an individual designer. So I said, okay, I'll tell, I haven't actually written the book formally, but I would. I want to design the cover first so I can write the book to fit the style of the cover. That doesn't sound too wacky. So he said, well, send me all the notes you've got on the book and I'll meet you in a month and then you can give me a brief. So I prepared a very formal brief to give this guy. I met him in a pub and we chatted and he, he had a bag and he kept fingering the bag. And I said, have you got something there? And he said, yeah, he said, I was very intimidated by your dislike of alternatives. So I had one crack at doing the... And he pulled it out of his bag and showed it to me. I said, that's absolutely perfect. And I bought it on the spot. And I was kind of glad because here I am preaching about how important it is to be good at buying ideas. And I bought one myself, which was... Um, I felt good about that. But I, I'll describe it to you because it's, it's quite intriguing. If you open it out flat, it says on the back, that shit will never sell. But if you close the book and put it on the table, it says on the front, it will sell. <laughs> so that if your sensitive grandmother is in the room, she won't be offended by, by the title. And I thought it was just an ingenious piece of design. I think you can see how it works, but yeah. it will sell. But uh, that shit will never sell. So I was very pleased with it, and I, I think you have to take a a bit of a chance if people are prudish out there well so be it prudish people aren't going to read a book about booze anyway and that's and that's kind of like your story you you drop the brief you uh, take a chance and how this goes and that's kind of fantastic to see how the cover I also sort of more or less wrote the wrote the book to, to, to fit the cover I mean it, 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 it's a there's quite a nice story at the, be at the beginning of the book which is just something that actually happened to me if I went out into some social situation, somebody would eventually say, oh, David's got this really interesting job, he invents strength. And then I get a bit kind of embarrassed by all this and uh, I, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And then somebody will say, well, 
are you a, do you make cocktails at home or something? And I said, no, not quite. I create drinks brands. And then they will say, well, do I know any of them? And then I say, well, yeah, you probably know Bailey's. And then somebody will say, oh my God, this man invented Bailey's. He must be incredibly rich, etc., etc., etc. So I got so tired of it eventually that when one woman asked me what I did for a living, I said, oh, I'm an undertaker. My eyes lit up. I said, really exciting. The family business. We're experimenting with burial at sea at the moment uh, and burial with fake military honors. And um, she just looked at me with amazement, wide mouth amazement. And it must be interesting when you go into a pub and you see all these brands like, I did this, I did that. It must feel like accomplishment, but yes, it's part of your, part of your job at the same time to do this. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what I was paid to do. I mean, not some brands uh, fly mightily for a while and then disappear. Some of the best brands I've ever had never even got onto the drawing board, let alone off it. Uh, but you can't win them all. I mean, that, 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 what I love is how ideas happen. Somebody sent me a piece oh years ago, and there was a, a really dull piece of legislative writing which said. For a wine to be classified as a varietal, you know, like Chardonnay, mm. it has to have at least 75% of the named grape. So in other words, if, if you have a Chardonnay wine, it has to have 75% Chardonnay. So I asked myself a simple question, what about the other 25%? What happens if you add a red wine, 25% red wine to Chardonnay? You could produce red Chardonnay. And it's, it's, it's such a simple, it's all about looking at things in a different way, trying to look at things in a different way. But I'm writing another book at the moment, which I'm very excited about, and it's called Inside the Box Thinking. And there's an awful lot of chat about blue skies thinking and thinking outside the box and all that stuff. I think it's just a way of making money out of people. I think all the best ideas that I've ever had come from inside the box. They've come from available information. There was a piece recently you may have heard of, of the use of artificial intelligence to develop a new antibiotic. Artificial intelligence has to operate with inside the box. It can only process information that's there. And I think everything, I mean, Bailey's came from Kerrygold. And that was inside my particular box at that particular time. And all the ideas I think I've had that have been um, good or not so good have all come from information that's readily available. And I remember doing a project on yogurt years ago, and somebody said as part of the brief that they, the, the companies didn't make any profit from yogurt. They made money from the milk subsidy, but yogurt itself was not profitable. And there was a product that was really successful in the UK called Bird's Eye Moose. Lots of kids sort of brought up on it. And I said, why don't we produce, if we blow air into yogurt, then we might make it profitable. And also, housewives feeding their children would probably regard yogurt mousse as more nutritious, nutritious than birds I met. You know, inside the box idea. Um, and you know, inside the box is where all the, you open it up like, like Jack in the Box, you eat it and pops out, comes a... Uh, inside the box is where all the information already is. So you aren't making a leap into some unknown. You're developing an idea from the data that you have. And every time I've worked on a new brief from a client, I've said, give me all the information that you've got. Give me the research you already carried out. I don't want to do anything new. And then go into the box. But people have to trust you. And somebody once said to me, before you asked me that question, how much do I get from every bottle of Bailey's sold? The answer is the same as you, unless you own Diageo shares. In which case, you get more than I do. I, got, I think I got paid £3,000 for developing Bailey's, which um, at the time was perfectly fair. And uh, it's just fortunate that it's become such a successful brand. But I don't feel any animosity towards the company for not cutting me in a penny ago. You've accomplished a lot, but looking back, do you kind of regret or look back, I could have done that better or this could have been better or whatever to become the best that you are? I think um, writing the book and also going out and talking to people like you, talking to university audiences and things, I think if I started again now, I'd be much better at um, doing what I do. And the ideas would be better, I think. I mean, if you think back on it, if you 
If you looked at a bottle of Baileys, it's a brown spot bottle of the kind that you get liqueurs and cognac in. If you looked at the bottle on a shelf, you'd have no idea what it was. It just, it's, it's not, I remember doing some focus groups in India and showing them a bottle of Baileys and I said, what do you think it is? And they said, whiskey maybe, brandy perhaps. So it didn't communicate. So would it, I think I would have done that differently. The other thing is, the sad thing, I suppose, but it's inevitable, is that when you give a brand to somebody, it becomes theirs. So whatever they do with it is entirely up to them. And you sometimes look at brands being advertised and they're your babies, they're, you know, they're, they're your creation. And uh, you look at the advertising and say, well, God, I think I could do it better or they could do it better than that. But no, I have no regrets. I mean, I, I do regret being as old as I am, but not an awful lot. I can do about that. And if you could give your advice to your, your younger self, what would you advise? The advice to my younger self, or yeah. the same advice as I give to anybody that I speak to. I think the most important one is go for one solution. Because if you, if you go for six solutions, you don't know, you don't have an idea in your head what the answer is. You know, you're guessing. If you go for one solution and you really, really believe that that's the best you can do at the time, nothing's ever perfect. I mean, it probably could have been a better version of Bailey's at, the, at, at the time, but there wasn't. It is what it is. You know, that's all decisions. But go for the single solution and believe. And, and it's, it's not blind belief, it's focused it's belief because you've been there and you've felt the problem. David, in, is there any projects at bar the writing the new book? Is there any brands or projects you're working with at the moment? What's happened with the book is that it, it's become very popular amongst young startups. And there are a lot of them about now. There's a great entrepreneurial mood in the ether at the moment. And a lot of young people have got in touch with me and said, I've just started with this new drinks brand. Can you help me? And my attitude is, well, if they bought my book, they're entitled to any advice and help that I can give them. So I, I meet a lot of young people who are, there's a lot of interest at the moment in what's what they call non-alcoholic or low-alcoholic spirit alternatives. I think the mistake they're all making is the products aren't any good. But a lot of young people are turning away from alcohol as they are turning away from meat. You know, there's a, there's a growing onset of veganism, uh, there's a growing rejection of meat and pursuit of plant-based materials, and the world is changing quite, quite quickly. I can remember young people, myself included, on the morning after saying we had a totally awesome evening last night and got well wrecked. And people don't regard that as a badge of maturity or intelligence anymore. People don't like it smash you you mentioned uh, something about kaiser occasion do japanese thinking or relating a brand oh yeah i think you're referring to kaizen Kai, that's got kaizen, kaizen. We developed a range of brands in the 80s, which were what I call sophisticated non-alcoholic drinks. The most famous of these was called Aqualibra. The most enduring is called Purdy's, which is still on the market at the moment. And this was a very successful operation. And as a result, the company wanted to develop a range of food products. And one of the great sources of innovation, I think, uh, for people is if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, I found a book in 1990 called Managing Your Mind and Mood Through Food. In it, they postulated that if you had protein, it would stimulate mental energy performance. If you had complex carbohydrate, it would stimulate long-term focus and concentration. So we developed a range of products called Kaizen, which are food products designed to improve your performance. So for example, if you're going out doing a presentation in the morning, if you had a high protein breakfast, you would feel up and ready for it. If you were going to write a marketing plan and require a lot of focus and concentration, you would consume complex carbohydrate. I found the name, it's a Japanese term called Kaizen, which is the science of continuous improvement. And the Japanese have this thing where they would say, take a car and say, okay, we're going to Kaizen the armrests. We're going to improve them. So that was another idea. 
David, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure, and uh, thank you so much. It's it's my pleasure. It's really been a delight to meet you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.